0: Welcome to the UDL Forward podcast, where we explore the latest and most innovative practices in universal design for learning. I'm your
1: host, Melissa Emler. And I'm Mia Schmiel, joining Melissa on this exciting journey as your co-host. As passionate advocates of UDL, we're committed to bringing you the most real-life conversations about the work of UDL implementation.
0: In today's episode, we'll dive deep into the fascinating world of design, placing a special emphasis on the importance of empathy, learner variability, and reducing cognitive load. We'll discuss how these key elements contribute to a more inclusive and effective learning environment for all.
1: Furthermore, we'll dive into the power of multiple means of representation and expression, examining how these approaches empower learners to better understand, interpret, and
0: communicate their ideas. So without further ado, let's get started on this exciting journey to enhance our understanding of empathetic design and the UDL principles that shape the future of education. Yes, let's move UDL forward. Welcome back to another episode of the UDL Forward podcast, the go-to place for all things universal design for learning or UDL. I'm Melissa Emler and I'm with Mia Schmiel and today we're your hosts and we're going to dive into an exciting, albeit a bit controversial topic, the most common myths around implementation of UDL. Now,
1: for those of you who may be new to UDL, it's a framework for designing and delivering instruction that caters to the diverse learning needs of all students. It's an incredibly powerful tool in our educational toolbox, but there's a little bit of misinformation that often swirls around it. Some of these misconceptions can create obstacles or barriers in the way of successful UDL implementation. And that's exactly what we're
0: here today to address. We'll tackle eight myths, ones that we've encountered time and time again, from the belief that UDL is only for students with disabilities to the idea that UDL is synonymous with differentiation. We'll unpack each of these myths, and we're not just going to tell you that they're false. We'll also provide some corresponding ideas and facts that will help you understand why they are myths.
1: Together, we'll debunk the misconception that implementing
0: UDL requires
1: expensive resources or that it obliges teachers to create multiple lesson plans for each and every class. We'll explore the breadth and scope of UDL, demonstrating that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach and that it's application beyond the realm of special education.
0: And finally, we'll dismantle the myth that technology is a prerequisite for UDL. Sure, technology can be a useful tool to enhance the UDL framework, but is it an absolute necessity? Eh, We'll explore that question a little more deeply today.
1: So whether you're a seasoned educator, a budding teacher, or simply a curious mind, stick around as we shed light into the reality of UDL and dispel the myths that have been holding it back. Let's move UDL forward together.
0: All right, Mia, we are back today for this great podcast on the myths of UDL. And I think we should just get started with talking about the myth number one, UDL is only relevant for students with disabilities. We often have this discussion and see this myth, and if we're being honest, Even in Wisconsin, UDL and the work that we do is housed in the special education department. And our funding to do this work comes out of IDEA and the work of the special education people at the state level. So that is a myth that has plagued UDL for a long time because a lot of times UDL gets its start in special education. But let's talk about why that's a myth. So where do you want to take us, Mia? Well, I I think what's interesting is, you know, the fact that
1: UDL oftentimes comes into the conversation around like, this is the pedagogy that we want to be thinking about, and this is the way we want to design learning for students. And it it begins with understanding like that process of design, right? And, and special ed teachers really do need to hone in on goals for specific units around um, you know what is the the thing that students need to know and be able to do so inherently special education teachers just are really good at finding what is the thing that kids need to know and be able to do and then specifically removing all of the chaos and like the noise around that specific target and and helping students get there on the flip side of that general ed teachers they know their content area curriculum. So they're able to hone in on what are those key skills and um, knowledge pieces that kids need, but they may not have the toolkit of, like, how do we provide different supports for students? And it's really this marriage between those two, you know, um, content area and special ed teachers that makes powerful learning for all students. And that I think is really where UDL has become the framework when we think about co-planning and co-teaching and really putting the skills and the expertise of general ed teachers and our special ed teachers together in creating an environment that works for, for all students.
0: Yes. The key phrase that I remember like memorizing when I first was introduced to UDL was, what is essential for some is good for all. And I actually entered the special education classroom as a teacher nine years into my career after I had been an English teacher for a very long time. And I realized that some of the things that I was doing to support my students with specific disabilities... Actually made a really big difference for the students who did not have a diagnosed dis- learning disability. And that's where the idea of learner variability comes in. And if we're designing for our learners and thinking about their assets and their strengths, then we really can create a more universally designed environment. And we end up in a situation where we can actually realize what is essential for some is good for all. So it is not just a special education initiative, although UDL gets its start there often, it does not need to remain with the label of special education. It's actually much, much broader than that. So myth number two. UDL requires teachers to create multiple lesson plans. Mia, when I first started doing workshops on UDL, this thing, this idea, this myth came up a lot because people would say, oh, well, this is kind of like every kid gets their own IEP. And and then the people thought that was great for personalization. And every teacher in the room was freaking out because they're like, how am I going to get all of this work done? How can you even expect me to make lesson plans for every kid? That is not what UDL is expecting. Not at all.
1: And and I think about the work that's taking place at Sheboygan Falls and shout out to Mark Thompson, who's one of the instructional coaches within that district. But Sheboygan Falls uses a phrase called predictable supports. And that has really shifted the way that they think about learning design and also lesson planning. So as they continue to move towards a learning goal, as they continue to design learning for their students, they have supports in place that at any point in time, any student can use. And it becomes really the ownership and the empowerment on the student. To take what they need in some of those options to help them move forward, which is very, very, very different than having five or six lesson plans for a day, right? If we continue to provide predictable supports and the kinds of structures or a way of thinking for students to help them get to a goal, we really open up incredible opportunities for all students to learn. So it removes that, you know, everybody's going to follow the same six-step process to here are the options. You have to be to this place. You have to learn this, this thing and really giving kids the options you know, to get there.
0: And when, as an instructor and as an educator, you know that there, there are predictable barriers right. when you're planning and designing learning experiences. We know that there are, Learners with attention needs. There are learners with reading needs. There are learning learners with lots of different preferences for how to approach a task. Some people love to work in groups. Some people just do not do well in a group in group situation. So we know when we're designing learning experiences that the learner variability will be, you know. Is, is there. The learner variability is there. And so therefore, the reason they came up with predictable supports is because they know and understand their learners and they know at any given time, they'll have the variability at play that impacts the experience. So when they're putting in supports, they're putting in the supports based on what they're predicting to be the most needed things. And then once they have that predicted, those supports become needed all of the time. And sometimes they need to add in a few more predictable supports, but what makes them predictable is that they're universal across the environment. And one of the things that they absolutely did, especially during COVID at Sheboygan Falls was they created in their Canvas, their learning management system, they created a course template so that students and parents could know exactly where they needed to go to get the information they needed and the support instructions and the assignments and and the, everybody's main page for each course looked the same and that was a really great predictable support. But once you have those predictable supports and you make them available, it eliminates the need to have a lesson plan for Johnny and a right. lesson plan for Sally and a lesson plan for Susie. And Mark and Julie, right? Like it just eliminates that need. So we are big fans of that language. And so, as Sheboygan Falls sort of brought that language of predictable supports to our team. And so in Wisconsin, you will hear us use predictable supports often.
1: And what I also appreciate about the idea of, of predictable supports is it helps us move towards like the end goal of UDL, and that is our students becoming expert learners and for them to know what they need at any point in time to help them learn a, a new skill yes. or a new topic that it becomes the ownership of the student and when we help them understand when we help each student understand what they need in order to learn or you know they're stuck and maybe they need a different way to you know begin brainstorming for an essay or whatever it might be Students having the ability to know what they need at any point in time is incredibly powerful. And that, I think, is what the whole shift in in thinking about predictable supports versus four, five, six different lesson plans is, is so important.
0: Absolutely. Okay, moving on. We're going to have to speed up our discussion, Mia, because we have eight of these things to go to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I know. Like, might have to do some condensing here. Yes, we are. And I see a, a couple of opportunities coming up. But yeah. for myth number three, UDL is too expensive to implement. Now, I find this one interesting because I don't actually find UDL very expensive to implement. I don't feel like it costs a lot of money other than the time. Time is a resource, but teachers need time to develop lessons and design lessons and experiences that can meet the needs of the variable learners in the classroom as well as, you know, create and design those predictable supports that are always supporting them. But it's not like anybody's asking anyone to buy a magic bullet curriculum and spend money on, you know, training and whatnot for the specific curriculum. It's really a way of being and sort of adopting that mindset is really where it's at. And that does take time, but I don't think it takes a lot of money. What are your thoughts on the expenses of UDL, Mia?
1: I think it's also connected to one of the myths that we have a little further down that UDL is about using technology. Yes. And you don't have to move to, you know, expensive tech for every student in order to design using UDL. And I think that may have been one of the misconceptions early on, that every kid needs one-to-one device. Every student needs access to some kind of text-to-speech or speech-to-text kind of application, which right now is totally free, right? Like we have so many of those tools available to us at, at no cost. I also feel like there are some um subscription services out there that will provide you different strategies for each of the the UDL checkpoints and, and that can be expensive but also not necessary mm-hmm. as you begin to really think about UDL as a design process versus a list of strategies that you're trying to to use that makes it so much more clear and 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 doable. And the investment, so I feel like that connection between yes, that the connection between tech and UDL yes has has made it feel expensive.
0: And the investment in UDL is really about the investment in the professional learning of your teachers right. and helping them feel equipped to meet the varying needs of the learners in their classroom, which is it's not an automatic thing. No, not everybody just knows how to address all of the needs that the learners have, but being investing in the people and the coaching is really a way to get the most bang for your buck. The other thing I'd like to say about the technology component is sometimes people buy lots and lots of seats for certain technology, software subscriptions, and they're only utilized by a small percentage of students. So I think that when you're thinking about universal design tools like ReadWrite Google or TextHelp, then those are things that once you universally provide them, they're actually really affordable. I don't have a current cost on a ReadWrite Google or a te- from TextHelp. But when I purchased that for all of our districts, it was really affordable and it sat on the Google domain and the price for the entire district was very small compared to the price for one student. But that is not the case with every subscription service, right? And then you have tools that people don't use and that's when those prices add up. So again, invest in the people is what I would say in response to that. In the technology piece, I'm sure we'll discuss a little bit later, but it is a factor. But if you're going to spend money on UDL implementation, invest in your people. All right, Mia, we are on to myth number four. We talked about this a little bit as it's related to myth number one. UDL is only relevant in special education settings. And I have a lot to say about this. Um, the first thing I'll say is that special education is not a place.
1: Hallelujah. I'm like jumping up and down to that statement.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, special education is not a place. And as people start to realize and create more inclusive environments, that is even more true. And again, back to what we were talking about uh, when we were talking about it's only UDL is only for special education students, it comes down to what is essential for some is good for all. And universal design actually started in architecture. And universal design uh, is an architectural piece where they create accessible buildings and environments for everyone. And so, you see curb cuts, and you see uh, bathrooms with, you know, the entry to restrooms in public places that don't have any doors, and they just become, you know, like walled angles or whatnot. And the purpose of that is because it's universally designed so that it's universally accessible. And when we design and plan for our most the people who need things most, it is not harmful to anyone else. So. Again, special education is not a place. And so when it says, when the myth is UDL is only relevant to special education settings, my question right back would be, so what is a special education setting?
1: And as I I think about universally designed learning and the experiences that we can provide, I'm also thinking about, for those of you who are instructional coaches or principals that are listening to the podcast right now, how are you providing options for your own staff? I think about, you know, the the myth that UDL is, is solely about special ed. And I love that you're bringing up, you know, special is not a, a place, right? We really want to include everyone. I also think about how does UDL apply when we are supporting, you know, professional learning as well. And I think, you know, when we we talk about where does it fit who does it apply to it really does apply to everyone and my question for folks who are listening is how are you providing options and how are you designing learning for even your adult learners because when we think about you know universal designed learning it really is you know how do we model what we anticipate seeing or what we hope to see within our classrooms with our own um, adult learners and i You know, I think about my own experience as a facilitator, solely working with adult learners. And if I only provided adult learners one option, if I only gave adult learners one way of doing something, Mm -hmm. if I didn't take into consideration that some folks need to think and then talk and some folks need to talk in order to think, if we didn't have that kind of a design process in mind. I would be out of a job. Right? <laughs> right because people would tune out and and we have to think about how do we engage learners as well? How do we give them that opportunity to you know really be in the learning versus being spoken to? But I just I'm, I'm thinking a lot about you know, if, if UDL was only about special education, we would not be seeking about options for our own adult learners too.
0: Right. And that is exactly, you just addressed everything in myth number five, which is UDL is a one size fits all approach to teaching. And- I think just to dovetail on what you're saying in terms of UDL applies to adult learners and all learners, actually, because the goal of UDL is to become an expert learner. But it is not a one size fits all simply because of the number of options and choices we're encouraged to give and provide, but those options and choices are always tied to the goal of the learner or you know, the learning outcome that we're we're striving for. But it's not a one size fits all because the path to that learning can be different. The challenge is, is that we've just not designed the experience to be different for you know most of you know this particular timeframes education work is not allowing for all of those options and choices. And so if in fact, you know, we want those predictable supports, but the teacher is not the sage on the stage in a lot of UDL classrooms. The teacher is the guide on the side and the facilitator of the learning. They're they're coaching the learners to make good decisions about how they'll reach their goal and what path or journey they'll take to get there. So that's, yeah, it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all approach. And myth number six is UDL is a teaching strategy or technique. And this is what, Is so hard to explain and get away from because the very (laughs) first question every person training or supporting anyone learning UDL gets, the very first and often repetitively asked is, so what does UDL look like? Yes. It is the most famous question. And the reality of it is, is it looks different everywhere you are because the context of the learning situation matters. And there's not a specific teaching technique that we can use and just call it UDL. And so often people will say, well, I UDLized this lesson. And you're like, okay, well, that's really great. What does it mean to UDLize? And it doesn't mean adopting a specific strategy or technique, it means designing. An experience that meets the goal, that provides options and choices for the variety and the variability of learners in the experience. That's what it means.
1: And I I have this love-hate relationship with some of the templates that are out there, right? Because as educators, we just we we want to know some kind of a formula, like how do we do this? And then the flip side, it, it really is about shifting the way that you think. So for some folks, seeing that, you know, we have to think about our goal and then we think about what are some common barriers in in reaching that goal and having a framework for thinking, which is very different than a lesson template. And that becomes... Again, like for me as a coach, this love-hate relationship, because for some people visually, they need to see like, what is a thought process I need to go through? And for other folks, when they see that visual support, they're like, oh, so there's a template I get to fill out. And then I'm doing UDL. And no, that's that's not it. It is so much more about your thought process and the way that you think about learning design and not always about completing a particular task. Mm -hmm. And what's really beautiful is, the folks that do this just naturally, like they can feel within the classroom that, oh, this set of directions isn't working. I need to actually like put these on the board. And there's a small group of students that have a particular question. And they just by nature have this ability to make some of these shifts on the fly because they, they're able to identify some barriers and they're able to see that, oh, these students who... I know really typically like get it on the first try. They're not getting it. I need to do something different or give them a different support. And that being very natural in the moment is so hard to explain to people sometimes. Like the best educators have a really hard time explaining why they're so good at being able to do this.
0: Yes, absolutely. All right, for time's sake, we have to talk about the last two. We talked about this one, myth number seven, technology is required for UDL implementation a little bit earlier, and we're just going to hit on it really quickly now. Tech, the reason that that is a myth is because some people believe, well, the reason it's a myth is because assistive technology and making assistive technology accessible is encouraged in the universal design for learning work, but it doesn't require you know assistive technology can benefit any human which is why it's being built into the computers in our pockets and our phones and all of those things but it's not required in that sometimes the the technology is distracting to us as learners and so we have to sort of sometimes it is the barrier definitely yeah. sometimes technology is the barrier and so we have to start making decisions about the experiences that we encounter based on how we, the learners, learn best. And the best way to get to that is to help learners reflect, did the technology help you or hinder you? What software do you use? And if they have something that, you know, I think about text help always. And so if they turn something in and we can tell they would have benefited from the technology, we can simply say, did you use the technology And they may not have. And then we can say, would the technology have helped you? How do you know when you need the technology, right? So it's helping the learner assess when it's a barrier and when it's a support. And it can definitely be both. And it is absolutely not a requirement of UDL other than it does provide accessibility.
1: And I just want to call out what you said just a little bit ago about that reflection piece. So when a student does use a particular tool, that that moment in time to stop and ask them, did it work for you? Like, Did it actually help you? Or was this something that stood in your way of additional learning? And that reflection is really, really important for our students to be able to just stop and think about, oh, yes, this actually did work for me in the future. I do need to have this tool available or I know this will make it a little bit easier for me to to learn X, Y, Z. But that reflection piece is absolutely important.
0: Absolutely. Okay. We're on myth number eight, and this is a favorite one. <laughs> UDL is the same thing as differentiation. <laughs> what do you want to say about this, Mia?
1: Every every time we, we have this conversation, right? One, I always learn something new from you, Missy. But it always comes back to... What is it that we know that we can be proactive from the Mm get-go, right? We know that there are going to be common um, learner variability needs within our classroom or within a particular context, whereas differentiation is more reactive, right? Oh, I'm seeing this group of students is struggling with this concept. I'm going to give them this. Or you're putting kids into this this group of needs when maybe they don't need them all the time, or they yeah. just need a different option to be able to share what they, they know or to be able to gain access to you know, some information. But it's really, UDL is more proactive in its approach and really thinking about the learning that's taking place. Differentiation also serves a purpose, but it's more reactive in being able to look at what are those common themes within groups of students.
0: Absolutely, and I think the biggest thing is it's that whole differentiation is more of a retrofit piece for individual students. So you know, if if a child doesn't do well on a specific assessment you can do something to that assessment to change the outcome for that particular student. And that's differentiating for that particular learner. But in a universal design situation, you are creating those differentiation pieces within the design, and then the learner makes a choice. If the learner makes a choice that is turns out to not be a great choice for the learner, Then you can move to a differentiation model and say, okay, so did this work for you? Why didn't it work for you? What do you think would work better? And then offer the student an opportunity to show you what he or she knows in a different way. And I think that that is really important. So differentiation is still needed, but it will be needed less if we create universally designed environments. So...
1: And again, it puts the ownership on students of being able to say, this is what I need versus the, the teacher saying, no, this is actually what you need and I've provided it here for you.
0: Absolutely. Again, it's empowering students absolutely. So that's the eight myths that we went through in a very fast and furious way. We will definitely put all of those in a post inside of the UDL Forward community space and again to join us in that space just go to udlforward.community and you can check out all of the information there and we'll make sure that we link up a post specifically on the myths and link this podcast there for you. So With that, Mia, I think we are done for this week and we will see you in a couple more weeks. That's a wrap for this episode of UDL Forward. We hope you found our discussion insightful and inspiring. Making education accessible and engaging for all students is really important work. Before we go, we want to remind you to please subscribe to
1: UDL Forward on your favorite podcast platform and tell a friend to listen to. And
0: don't forget to join our always-on, always-available online community at udlforward.community. In the community, you can connect with like-minded educators and share your thoughts, experiences, and questions related to UDL. We'd love to see you there and continue this important conversation. Until next time, keep
1: pushing those boundaries of education and moving UDL forward.